but it's really being operationalized by our opponents who don't want to meet us in a hard power contest and instead are trying to utilize the seams, uh, the gray areas, and compete with us at levels below conflict. And that's really where CA, and this is a big part of our paper, can come in and really make a difference in identifying where sharp power is being executed and also finding where its vulnerable populations on key strategic areas might be as well as coming out with our utilizing all elements of national power and a smart power methodology to counter it. Hi, this is John McElligot, your host for today's episode on the 1CA podcast. We're joined today by three captains, authors of the paper, Civil Affairs as a Function of Smart Power. Redefining Assessments, Reporting, Education, and the Role of Civil Affairs Within the Evolving Paradigm of Great Power Competition. The three captains are Kevin Chaplin, who is an active component U.S. Army Civil Affairs Officer. He has deployment experience in Africa, Indo-Pacific, and he's currently assigned to Bravo Company, 83rd Civil Affairs Battalion, which is based in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Captain Promotable, James Masici, who is an active component Army Civil Affairs Officer with deployment and service experience in the Arabian Peninsula, Africa, Afghanistan, Europe, and Indo-Pacific. He's currently a master's candidate at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts, or Boston, Mass. And Captain Kyle Starin, who's currently a planner at the 353 KCOM and a master's candidate in international security policy at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University in New York City. He previously served with the 83rd CA Battalion at Fort Bragg, and he has deployed to Bahrain and Niger as a civil affairs officer. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Thank you for having us. Uh, we mentioned uh, before recording here that uh, we've got one of you in Fort Bragg, uh, one in Boston, and one in New York. So I have not yet asked if uh, we've got any Red Sox fans or Yankees fans or, or where you guys hail from. James, where were you? Where's your hometown? Where'd you grow up? Uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. So neither a Red Sox or a Yankees fan here. So. So we're not going to offend anyone either way. Kevin, how about you? Yeah, so I actually grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, and uh, if you ever see me office, I grew up right outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania. So not much of a baseball fan, but uh, I do support the Mets, and that's kind of disappointing <laughs> persistently. Yeah. Is there any town in Pennsylvania that resembles uh, the office, the actual town? Yeah, so that's actually a real place. Okay. Scranton is, that it, the Steamtown Mall exists. Nice. All right. yep. And Kyle, where are you coming from? Originally from Memphis, Tennessee. So I have no loyalty to the Yankees or the Red Sox. I sympathize with the Mets just because I find them sympathetic. <laughs> or pathetic, maybe. Either way. <laughs> they have the best jingle of all time. I don't think any other baseball team has their own jingle. Right. No, that's a good one. Well, gentlemen, we, we're here today to talk about your paper that you guys put together and the um, – the methodology you used, what kind of findings you had. And let me start with the first question. Uh, you talk about civil affairs as a function of smart power. So what does smart power mean to you? And uh, this is a question I'll throw out to anyone. You could say, you know, who's responding or, or not at all. Just uh, let us know how you define smart power. What does that mean? Yeah, I'll take that one up front. This is James. If you look at smart power, smart power is coined by Joseph Nye who is a political scientist of international relations, and it's a combination of hard and soft power together. So what it is, it's using all the elements of national power, whether it's political, economic, military, law enforcement, even cultural power, 
to achieve national goals, not having an overemphasis on hard power or overemphasis on soft power, but having the correct balance to pinpoint where, when, and how we can best support our national objectives with a combination of all elements of national power. Okay. So you guys all came from civil affairs based at Fort Bragg, uh, the, the center of the universe and the home of a lot of CA tactical units. So it sounds like what you're talking about is more at the strategic level. Are you generally arguing that civil affairs should be brought up from tactical operational to more operational strategic levels? Hey, this is, uh, this is Kyle. I, we're not arguing for any massive structural change. I think it's more of a reformatting of the outlook. So to get back to what James was talking about, tying in elements of national power into a cohesive strategy going forward, even a tactical unit can inform tactical combat commanders in terms of how to use other elements of national power at a tactical level. So I think that's what we're talking about is just getting after how to tie in military units with uh, initiatives put forward by the embassy in that country and vice versa, telling the embassy what the military has to offer in terms of capabilities to achieve strategic ends, even at a tactical level. So why would you say that using civil affairs as a function of smart power is needed, or why is that a wise move for the U.S. government? Hey, Kevin here. I'll take that one. So I I think it's important to emphasize that as civil affairs, we're often working in areas that are continuously being contested by a lot of different actors on the, the interstate scale meaning that puts us in a real good position to kind of identify and, and determine how these peers are, are using their, in this case, sharp power to disrupt our uh, efforts abroad uh, or trying to exploit a population or maybe trying to destabilize an environment. So really puts us in a good position. I think uh, that allows us to inform policymakers or inform the DOD to then inform policymakers to identify exactly which two tools need to be used, why, uh, and where, and for what end. So, Kevin, you brought up a, a new term uh, for the audience here, sharp power. You mentioned sharp power in the paper. We started off mentioning smart power. So what's sharp power all about, and who wields sharp power? Within the context of our paper, I'll let James follow up with this because this is pretty near and dear to his heart, but uh, within the context of our paper, um, in this case, Peer competitors like China, Russia are those wielding sharp power, uh, and the National Endowment for Inde- National Endowment of Democracy defined it as enabling authoritarians to cut razor like into the fabric of a society, stoking and amplifying existing division. Um, so, in this case, it could take the form of China uh, in, in expanding its Belt and Road Initiative across Africa or through Pakistan. Um, using their infrastructure bank to exploit local economies in, on the continent of Africa, Africa for that for that matter. Um, but I'll let James kind of follow up with the details on that one. Yeah, uh, this is James. So, yeah, sharp power, it's, it's a pretty new concept that's out there, but I think it's something that we've seen in a while. So uh, I think the previous incarnation was known as soft balancing. And what sharp power really comes from is the fact that U.S. and our allies still remain the largest power brokers in terms of hard power around the world. So even though our competitors are starting to make uh, some small incremental, or actually small, but some rather large incremental gains at hard power levels we have, we still remain, and with our allies and alliances, the uh, predominant hard power 
in the entire world. Uh, and furthermore, to that point is, um, if you look at this as well, it's the economic interdependency uh, between the U.S. and our competitors is so much uh, ingrained after such a large period of high, uh, globalization following the 90s, following the 80s, and all through the 90s and early 2000s that an actual armed conflict would be very detrimental to all parties. So we have these system-level deterrences in place. And if you look at Joint Doctrine Note 1-19, so this is actually in doctrine, it's, it's, we, we are in a part of something called a competition continuum. And of those three legs of the competition continuum, one of them is competing at levels below conflict. And that's really where sharp power comes in. So what it is, it's manipulative, it's precise, it finds areas where there's instability, that you can use micro-level inputs to get macro-strategic-level gains. And this is being wielded by China. One can look at their three warfares, the strategic psychological operations they utilize, the overt and covert knee manipulation, and the exploitation of natural and international legal systems, but also the Gerasimov Doctrine, by the Russians, and you can also look at some of the regional actors out there as well. So Iran's use of the militias throughout the Shia Crescent, it really highlights this as well. So this is something that is out there, right, still being studied and manifested, but it's really being operationalized by our opponents who don't want to meet us in a hard power contest and instead are trying to utilize the seams, uh, the gray areas, and compete with us at levels below conflict. And that's really where CA and this is the big part of our paper, can come in and really make a difference in identifying where sharp power is being executed and also finding where its vulnerable populations on key strategic areas might be, as well as coming out with our utilizing all elements of national power and a smart power methodology to counter it. Now, good point. Now, the definition of sharp power reference, I believe, authoritarian regimes, but sounds like it's not just relegated to authoritarian governments to wield sharp power is, you know, your argument is part that the U.S. should be doing this as well, right? I would take a step back and say sharp power has uh, negative connotations to it, specifically with trying to tear down uh, democracies, tear down governance to make strategic ends met. So if you look at uh, what Chris Krebs said, he's the director of the Cybersecurity Center for Homeland Security. He says, you know, Russia's not trying to win the game, so to say. They're just trying to cause instability. They're trying to cause chaos, and they're trying to destabilize. So smart power is about stabilization. It's about uh, governance. It's about building stable systems. Now, sharp power inversely is about tearing those down. Right. So you really have two diametrically opposed uh, constructs that we, we can see forward here. Okay. But I think the 95th, for example, is focusing on uh, some governance and anti-governance capabilities. So would anti-governance, for example, if, if we were in a country where we wanted to help tear down the government or institutions to build up ones that were uh, sided with the U.S. interests, then that could be seen as sharp power as opposed to smart power, or is it really just based on your perspective? Yes. I think the, uh, the, the resistance, counter-resistance narrative, or the offensive or defensive resistance, as I've heard it also called as well, that can kind of be filled into sharp power. But the thing is, sharp power is mostly aimed at either anocracies or democracies. So we have to look at the kind of the situation, state in which it's going on. All right. Gentlemen, you argue that the, the U.S.'s uh, most dangerous rivals will utilize non-military means to compete. So uh, maybe talk about some evidence that supports that claim, what's been happening in the news that we could talk about that's uh, unclassed. And what are the global conditions that you would assume for this world of less military conflict with U.S. rivals? 
Yeah, this is Kyle. Um, so James talked about the the three warfares of China doctrine. That came out in 1999, so we're already yeah. 20 years behind that doctrine. Um, and what they argued in that in that paper in 1999 was uh, just a confluence of military and economic means to achieve national goals. And we're seeing that most <clears throat> clearly in how they're executing the Belt and Road Initiative across really the world, uh, across Asia, into Africa, into um, Southeastern Europe even. And not only are they achieving infrastructure development that they control and then directly benefits national Chinese companies, but also if a country cannot repay certain debts, the Chinese government itself gains complete legal control of key infrastructure such as ports and harbors. Wow. So, so they really get them over a barrel. Uh, yeah, competing at a conflict below or a level below conflict in such a way as they actually gain key nodes in the globalized economy okay. uh, physically. We saw in, uh, in Russia and Crimea, you use an irredentist claims to assume uh, protection over a population of another sovereign country. Um, in this case, they were saying that the ethnic Russians of Crimea deserved Russian protection. Um, and so they were able to annex a portion of another country, again, below the level of conflict. Kyle, one thing, uh, I, th I think a perfect example of what you're talking about is in Sri Lanka, where the Chinese uh, were, they want a contract to build a naval facility on the coast of Sri Lanka. Uh, and part of that, part of the conditions there were, you know, if the Sri Lankans default on this debt, then this actual port becomes. Chinese property, and mm -hmm. voila, right there, and then they have, a, they have access to a naval, a naval base now in, uh, in Sri Lanka. I like this, James, and I'd like to add on as well, the Russians are now starting to expand not only in the Middle East, as we've seen with the news out of Syria, but look what the CC and Putin just had a summit uh, a couple weeks, last week, in terms of Russia's policy in Africa. And now you see Russians uh, providing private military contracts to large energy resources in Mozambique. And you also see them act, taking a more active role as a moderator and mediator between some disputes throughout Africa. Now, Africa, and China also has large inroads in Africa as well as the other two gentlemen discussed, is going to be the world's largest economic market by 2050. So this just goes to show you how important competing for these key nodes really are at levels below conflict. Yeah. So you're competing mainly through economic means, I guess, uh, social engineering maybe, using uh, social media and the, the sharp power that you described so that we can, so that rivals can compete with the United States uh, without going to armed conflict. Is there also the conditions, I guess, for this future or the ongoing situation that we have right now, I guess, with these rivals, are they not investing in their own militaries? Are they putting money essentially into foreign economies and foreign direct investment and not so much into building arms, or are they doing both? This is Kyle. Uh, I think it depends on each country. China and Russia are clearly in different economic conditions. So China has the money to both expand influence through the Belt and Road Initiative economically, while also conducting a massive military modernization. They planned this since at least the 1980s. Uh, they were going to focus on economic moder modernization and then achieve a certain level of wealth and then perform military modernization, which they're doing right now. Yeah. On the flip side, Russia cannot does not have the money to do anything economically. You know, it fielded a tank that it can't actually sustain in the field. 
So it's hard power modernization efforts are not, uh, there's, there's just no money behind it. Whereas their information campaigns are great. They're brilliantly executed and completely coordinated. They have to do that because I don't think they can afford to do anything on the order of a Belt and Road Initiative, even in its lo- local sphere of influence. Right. So that's the cheaper way to compete, and they partner with countries like China to, who have the hardware. Exactly. And I would like to add, too, is, you know, Russia also is Europe's gas station. I think some people don't realize that as well. Is You know, they have that economic interdependency uh, with one of our key allies. Many of our NATO allies get in the realms of 70 80 percent of their energy. And uh, Russians' energy production is only going to expand as the Arctic starts to thaw, in a sense. I mean, right now they're currently taking liquid natural gas shipments from the Arctic, and they're taking the western route. Now they're able to go west around and deliver liquid natural gas to uh, Korea, Japan, and China. So Russia's economic prosperity could increase in the near term. But right now we have to realize is there's economic interdependency link between Russia and all some of our major allies, both NATO and Indo-Pacific allies as well. So while Russia does have not as high of a military, they do actually have some economic interdependency factors. Well, they can't wield that at this time, as Kyle suggested. Folks, you've been listening to an interview with Captains Kevin Chapla, James Matich, and Captain Kyle Starin. They are authors of the paper Civil Affairs as a Function of Smart Power. When we come back, we're going to dive into their methodology for the study they conducted, their major findings and recommendations. We'll be right back. Let me tell you about the Civil Affairs Association, the main sponsor of the 1CA podcast. It was established in 1947. The Civil Affairs Association is a veterans organization serving professionals of the U.S. civil affairs community. Members have served or are currently serving in the armed forces or are the descendants of those who served. As a tax-exempt organization, the association operates within the guidelines of Internal Revenue Code Section 501c19. It is organized for educational, professional, fraternal, and social purposes. The association promotes esprit de corps and disseminates relevant information. The CA Association also serves as an advocate for civil affairs within DOD to ensure an adequate capability to perform any mission assigned or task to the CA community. Membership costs are low. E1 through E4 pay only $5 a year. E5 through E9 pay $20. Cadets and midshipmen pay $10. And officers and civilian pay $25 a year. Life membership is also low. Pegged now at $200. So if you're committed to the CA community, then it makes a lot of sense to invest in a life membership and save in the long term. Hi, welcome back to the 1CA Podcast. I'm your host, John McElligot. Our guests today are Captains Kevin Chapla, James Machich, and Kyle Starin. Gentlemen, I want to ask you a question about the survey that you conducted. Could you describe the methodology? How'd you do this? Well, as we started looking at, you know, this paradigm that we're in and the, the role that CA could play uh, as this connector of the elements of, of smart power, specifically linking up the interagency and the DOD and vice versa, as well as being able to understand and assess where malign actors were engaging, we wanted to make sure that the civil affairs officers had the tools and training they needed to actually fulfill this role. So the three of us have all, you know, we've actually all served together, and we always complain about storyboards, and we jokingly said, you know, we put more effort into storyboards than anything else in actual reporting. That was kind of the genesis of this whole paper. 
And so we went off and contacted Proponency, and Proponency, uh, the artist formerly known as Proponency, gave us p- permission to uh, survey the active captains we ch- and reserve captains. We chose to do a survey in which we looked at a couple different factors. Up front, we had the demographics. Then after that, we looked at what civil affairs officers, specifically captains, were reporting and at what frequency they're reporting and who they're reporting to, as well as which mediums they're reporting to. Then we had a third section, I think is the most important section. That is we used a five-point Likert scale to rate the uh, emphasis both forward and rear commands put on the various reports that they did. And finally, we had a section on education in which we asked civil affairs officers, once again on a five-point Likert scale, to rate themselves in their ability on their knowledge of certain very important tasks that we all that we felt were needed to a combat sharp power and b promote smart power and those were things like knowing about baseline economics social network analysis dod uh, authorities and funding and interagency funding and authorities are some examples uh, we sent it out it was open for two weeks we had a, over 100 respondents of which 86 had deployment experience or operational experience so we had almost a 24% response rate between the active componency, which is a fantastic sample size, to actually get some real-time statistics and data off. Nice. I'm going to go back to that first approach of uh, proponency. Were they surprised when you approached them? Um, and do you know if anyone else in recent history has ever surveyed uh, CA officers this way? So it's, it's funny you should ask that. Um, they were open to it. Luckily, a good friend of ours is up at Proponency and Personnel Division, and our former battalion XO was uh, up there as well. So they were very welcoming once we told them why we were surveying and uh, what would be used for. But uh, as there is an infamous uh, captain survey of two, three years ago, we wanted to make sure that there wasn't a repeat of that. So the agreement we kind of made with them was to ensure that all of the questions were data point only and there was no free text. And also, we promised not to leak it to, you know, Army WTF moments like some of our predecessors might have done. Good call. At symposium, we got to meet some of the civilian leads uh, from the Marine Corps side of the house. And I'm really hoping that some of the conversations that were generated at the CA symposium and their interest in our findings and data will eventually lead to us also being able to send the survey and get further data for the Marine side of the house as well. Because, you know, we, we forget sometimes that they are a uh, pretty large or Mount guys and girls that are also in the CA realm. Right. Well, yeah, and that should uh, reminds me. We should mention to the audience that uh, this was submitted as an issue paper to the Civil Affairs Association for consideration during the Civil Affairs Symposium um, hosted in Tampa, Florida. And your team was selected as one of the finalists, and so you went down there to present. Um, could you talk about that experience? Yeah, I'll, I'll speak to that. Uh, this is Kevin here. Uh, that's one of the first times that I've actually had an opportunity to engage some of the senior leaders from both USA KPOC as well as the Civil Affairs Association. Quite honestly, before we had submitted this paper, you know, I wasn't, I didn't even really know what the Civil Affairs Association was. I didn't know what it did. So uh, on a personal level, it was really informative. Uh, it also allowed me to meet a lot of a lot of folks who had some really good perspective on civil affairs and how it fits into foreign policy for that matter. That's good to hear. Would you recommend other people listening that they should consider submitting an issue paper? Was it was it painful or was it pretty painless? I guess things like these 
are kind of enjoyable when it's content that you're interested in. I think all I can speak for the three of us when I say stuff like this is is uh, motivating for us, and we actually enjoy it. Which I don't I don't know what that says about us, but uh, <laughs> uh, it made the process a little bit more fun. Uh, but I was actually just telling a, a colleague today about the association and uh, kind of the impact it made on me just two days being down there. And I think one thing we did note is the demographically there's a little bit of a, a gap uh, that you didn't see as many younger junior officers there. And I think that's something that we probably need to fix uh, if we're going to move this branch into the future. So I'm yeah. excited. Yeah, I agree. So gentlemen, what were your major findings from the survey? This is Kyle. I think the major finding was that reporting requirements that the units, that civil affairs units push their teams to make are not in a format or not important information for other agencies in DOD or U.S. government. So our reporting isn't being shared widely across different agencies, and it's not informing decision-making. In effect, we've required reporting formats that don't do anything to serve the interests of the United States as a whole. Um, Our reporting's not informing decision-making, and as a result, the regiment doesn't have as much influence as it ought to. Okay. Can you sort of read into that as they're just going through the motions and submitting reports that go nowhere and that no one really cares about? Well, yeah. I mean, in a way, yeah. They, A lot of them are reporting um, back to their units, their home station units, and that reporting just stays at the home station unit. Or... The reporting that's required by their Ford commanders or the embassy or anyone on deployment is vastly different from the reporting format required by their home station units. So you have a we had a, a lot of people report that they were double reporting. You know, yeah. you have the same information, but it's in you know, your your home station unit wants it one way and your Ford commander that you're actually supporting in the field uh, wanted a different way. So it was, it was little minute things like that, but for the most part it was just the the lack of quantitative analysis meant that civil affairs reporting was not taken into account for the operational cycle of Ford commanders. It reminds me of um, Office Space and the characters who just moan about the TPS reports, the cover sheets. And like, I think what we're saying is, is storyboards or TPS reports. I think that's really the crux of this whole argument. I think I want to rename the paper storyboards or TPS reports. <laughs> yeah, people would get it. I mean, it's bad enough that you have to do the TPS reports and cover sheets, but if you had to do it in multiple different varieties for different audiences, it's great that you've done this survey. It's putting numbers to something that I think people have talked about behind the scenes anyway. This is James again. I would add also, Kyle, I 100% agree with everything Kyle said, but I think the largest takeaway for me, and I I was a battalion sim chief, so this is just kind of how you frame things is where you sit is where you stand in terms of bureaucracy models. I I would say that I think the biggest problem that uh, I saw was that, and this is something I think a lot of us know already, is we don't have an accurate assessment tool in the Civil Affairs Toolkit, uh, either doctrinally Super actually in terms of training and education. And I think that became pretty evident. And, you know, we, we did a really big doctrine review. And we asked folks specifically, um, are you using the CADF, the uh, Conflict Assessment Framework 2.0, 
CAF 2.0, CAF 2.0, and only 24 folks uh, within the whole entire survey actually used it. And of those 24 that used it, only 12 forward commands actually utilized uh, the findings. The same thing was very with resident with JSIM forms, as well as other doctrinally appropriate running estimates, the ASCOPE Committee crosswalk. We kept on finding that these doctrinally and schoolhouse correct assessment frameworks were not being utilized. So I think when we delved further into that and actually read these, we found that these are for the nation state level. And in this paradigm we're in, we need to be able to assess populations and the effects on populations at the micro level. And we don't have a standardized tool within civil affairs to do that right now. And it's putting the DOD as the primary engagement arm with the civilian population and the human domain at a huge disadvantage by having a tool that only assesses subjective information at the nation state level. Well, based on what you found then, gentlemen, what are your recommendations for civil affairs to become more relevant in smart power? Hey, Kevin here. I'll, uh, I'll kick off this portion. Um, at least for me, in terms of what we identified with the survey, it, it became very apparent very quickly that our reporting is sort of created and developed to just support organically civil affairs. Like it's, it's just, it's something that we use only for ourselves as opposed to, all right, if we say we really want to affect some sort of strategic level end state, maybe we should take a look at our reporting and try and cater that to what other folks in the interagency might uh, find interesting and or actually useful. We've all seen it in our experience in civil affairs. That's one skill that we lack tremendously is, is the ability to write effectively. It's not something that's really an emphasis uh, during the CIQC. Um, and if you don't have it before you get through the pipeline, then you're probably not going to develop those skills during your training or, or further on while you're working within civil affairs. Um, so for me, that was one of my biggest critiques was just our ability to effectively write and not only write just for the civil affairs community, but write in a way that uh, is digestible for policymakers and decision makers across the whole spectrum of the U.S. government enterprise. Right. One of the things we talked about in the paper also was expanding uh, the scope of the civil affairs qualification course to include more interagencies, schooling, you know, sending people to D.C. to take part in some state of art courses or other agency courses just to get them exposure to the way the rest of the foreign policy apparatus thinks and writes and communicates. We believe that's just a huge lack of our of our training and education um, insofar as exactly like James was talking about the elements of smart power. You've got to be able to think in terms of economics and, and politics and, and culture um, is that really what we're getting out of the CAQC currently. Anything else about training or uh, personnel that you would recommend changing? This is James. I, I think it's quintessential for the, the regiment on the joint level to establish common framework for assessments. And it needs to be utilized across the complete spectrum of operations. There needs, and we also need to realize that civil affairs aren't the sole gatherer of civil information. So I, I think as we, you know, are in this age of lethality, we can still come up with uh, like a three questions uh, or at least pertinent information that can be taken in during a major combat operations and then have a framework that is more civil affairs focused across the entire spectrum of, of operations, as well as utilize surveys and other forms of data you know, gathering to be able to really 
fill these metrics and have a baseline assessment to know when, where, and how adversaries are um, engaging with the human domain, and then also knowing what areas that are vulnerable in which uh, that are, that, with populations that are associated or reside within key terrestrial domains, uh, whether that be narrow seas or strategic resources or anything along the likes that are of our national interest. So I think that's really paramount in establishing that. In the paper, we bring up two or three different uh, systems that would analyze instability versus stability in a local area. And it's just basically a questionnaire that civil affairs could use or even conventional forces if they were in an area long enough. And what that would do is quantitatively um, describe the local situation and provide the same metric for every rotation going through that area. So another key component is that civil affairs teams rotate through the same geographic area, the same local area, and they don't talk with a common language even amongst the teams that are rotating in and out. Whereas with a couple of these metrics, we could measure something, the next team could continue to measure the exact same way, and you could see which way stability or instability was trending and communicate that upward. Establishing a baseline and measuring something is paramount, as you say, to knowing whether you're making any progress in which or which way you're heading, positive or negative. Well, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to an interview on the 1CA podcast uh, with Captains Kevin Chapla, James Machich, and Kyle Starin. They are authors of Civil Affairs as a Function of Smart Power, Redefining Assessments, Reporting Education, and the Role of Civil Affairs within the Evolving Paradigm of Great Power Competition. Gentlemen, I thank you very much for your time. Thanks for being on the 1C Podcast. Thanks, John, for having us. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.